There's been a lot of discussion around butter, dairy, and the use of palm oil. I and others thought there was value in having a discussion with experts to understand the fundamental questions better. This is first of two discussions to provide perspective on the issue. This is brought to you by Dairy at Guelph and Food Focus. My name is Mike Von Massa. Today, I speak to three experts to learn more about palm oil, its use in dairy rations, and how its use may or may not affect both milk composition and processed dairy products. I learned a lot and found there is a lot more to learn. The conversation today is with Dr. Alejandro Marangoni, who is a professor in food science at the University of Guelph and the Canada Research Chair in Food Health and Aging, Dr. John Kant, who is a professor of dairy cattle nutrition and director of the Centre for Nutrition Modeling at the University of Guelph, and Dr. Dave Kelton, a veterinarian, professor of epidemiology in the Ontario Veterinary College and Dairy Farmers of Ontario Chair in Dairy Cattle Health. I am sure you will find the discussion as interesting as I did. Gentlemen, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm looking forward to our conversation because I'm sure I'll learn quite a bit. And so without further ado, let's get straight to the discussion. We're talking a little bit about sort of butter and palm oil and and the issues that have been raised recently in the industry relative to dairy. So before we get into dairy specifically, Alejandro, I was wondering if you could sort of say, what is palm oil? How is it used in the food industry and why is it used in the food industry? No, thanks, Mike. Yes, uh, palm oil is the, um, the oil, I mean, oil seed. It's not an oil seed, but the oil producing crop, uh, the largest one in the world. To give you an idea, there's about 75 million metric tons of palm oil produced in the world, like in, in the past year. To compare that to soybean, which is 60, rapeseed oil is about 27, you know, sunflower seed is about 20, that kind of thing. So it's 75. It's the most highly produced oil. So it is widely available. It is inexpensive and uh, it's produced mainly in the countries of Southeast Asia and some of them in Latin America. So Malaysia being uh, one of the largest producers. Now Indonesia has taken over. Indonesia, Malaysia. And a lot of countries in, uh, in South America are trying, attempting to establish a palm oil plantation. Interestingly, it's the African palm tree, but Africa is not a large producer of palm oil. But many of the trees came originally from Nigeria. Uh, but if you go to Malaysia and you drive towards Singapore, all you see is one large palm oil plantation from side to side of the, of, of the country. So they tend to take over the country. It, it is inexpensive, produced in large amounts, and it's very functional. Uh, because it is about 50% unsaturated, or think about unsaturated fats being oils, liquid oil, and 50% saturated. So you mix the two of them together and you get rheological properties that are ideal to make things like bakery products, to give some solidity to food products. So they're used extensively all over the world to, for manufactured food products because they're inexpensive, widely available. And palm oil came to be really when we had a ban on, uh, on hydrogenated fat or the manufacturers, the food manufacturers had to declare the amount of hydrogenated fat in their products. Then they became very scared and they needed a replacement really fast and they couldn't really go back to animal fats because that's a, a no-no because of many different reasons. And so palm oil came to be at that point. 2006 was the year that legislation came to be and then the world changed and everybody change towards palm oil. Uh, so we replace all the hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated fat with the saturated fat from the palm oil. Moreover, there's an enormous oleochemical industry in Malaysia. So they split the fat, they make fatty acids, they make glycerin, they make biodiesel, 
forms the basis for other like surfactants, very, very active over there. So basically widely available and the derivatives from palm oil are widely available in the, in, in the world as well. Lately, uh, many countries don't want to consume palm oil, particularly in Europe. It has become a very, very important trend because of the issues with sustainability. So um, the fingerprint, the sustainability fingerprint of palm oil is very poor because it grows in tropical rainforests and they're home to a great uh, biodiversity. The, the last remaining biodiversity of the world is in many of those tropical rainforests, which unfortunately get cut down for the establishment of palm oil plantations. And that is happening in the Amazon and that happened in Malaysia and it's definitely happened in Indonesia. You see all those fires that are happening over there. A lot of time they're cutting down the forest of Borneo to establish plantations, which represents economic value to the people, progress. And as well, don't forget that everybody criticizes palm oil for this issue with sustainability. And there's even places that are beginning to ban palm oil in, in, in Europe. But it also provides a cheap nutrition, inexpensive nutrition to a lot of the world's poor in India, in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, China, in the backwoods of China. So it's an important food for a lot of places in the world. I guess it's used also in animal feed. Yeah, and we'll get to that with John in a second. I just want to ask one follow-up question, and it relates to, so palm oil has both desirable qualities that you talked about, and it's cheap. But given some of the concerns around sustainability, we are doing things to try and get other fats to perform like palm oil does. And I know you've done some of that research. I spoke to your PhD students separately a couple of weeks ago, and that will be coming out soon. Tell us a little bit about that just uh, as an aside here. As an aside, I mean, we try to do new things here at the university. So if uh, the, the whole purpose there is if you do not want to have hydrogenated fat, if you do not want to have animal fats, meaning beef fat like tallow, pork fat, lard, um, uh, and you do not want to have hydrogenated fats, you're left with very little. Uh, there are no real options to add to, uh, I mean, other than cocoa butter, which, come, which is the fat in chocolate, and some exotic butters of some weird palm trees here and there. There really is nothing else out there. So what we uh, try to do is invent ways to gel oils. We, we actually started the whole area of oleogels in which we take non-unconventional food molecules and make them assemble, self-assemble in the oil, and they make things like oil jello. Uh, of different hardnesses, and that sort of mimics the functionality of like a hard fat, which is not a gel, but it's more of a crystalline material with oil mixed together. And lately, uh, we were very lucky to be able to in discover, invent a process in which we take glycerol or glycerin, and we take certain oils, like cottonseed, peanut, rice bran, certain specific oils, and we basically take some of the fatty acids that are in, the, uh, in these oils and put them on the glycerol, and what we create is partial glycerides or partially broken down, if you may, like acylglycerols, like they're not the full on thing, they're partial glycerol, and those have higher melting points. So by just running a very simple enzymatic reaction and creating this partial glycerides, mono and diglycerides, the melting point goes up and the whole thing solidifies. So without adding any hydrogenated fat, without adding any saturated fat, you create a solid fat from things like cottonseed oil, rice bran oil, tiger nut oil, there's certain specific oils that do it better than others. And you can think now of locally grown oils being converted in small batches into hard fat. You could think about almost like an artisanal production of these things. Very simple, low temperature processes with enzymes. 
um, it is an interesting option to replace many of the uses of palm oil. And then we don't have to extract palm oil, transport across the ocean, get it over here. And we're not necessarily destroying large amounts of uh, tropical rainforest. So we were very happy with that, with that discovery. Yeah. It's really cool. And it gives us the functionality that is really one of the, the things that we love about palm oil. John, let's switch gears a little bit. Having started with that foundation, why do we feed palm oil to cattle and, and what does it do for cattle? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Well, we, yeah, we feed palm oil for the fat and the energy content of it, really. That's the issue and fat of all the different uh, macronutrients that an animal consumes. Fat has the highest amount of energy in it. And dairy cows, uh, well, like any kind of cow, they actually will be in what's called a negative energy balance when they start off their lactation. And different animals uh, have different approaches to producing milk. So some are what are called income breeders, and they will eat enough food to satisfy the needs to make milk. And some animals are called capital breeders. So they basically load up their body with fat and then mobilize that fat from their body to make milk in the mammary glands. So for example, a blue whale is a capital breeder. A blue whale has a lactation that lasts six months and they don't eat the whole time. They just mobilize everything from their bodies. A cow is like a mix of these capital and income breeders. So they will mobilize some fats at the beginning of their lactation, you know, when they first uh, have a calf. And then later on, they will, mo they will build up their body fat reserves again. Well, there's a problem that they could get in too negative an energy balance so that they're mobilizing too much fat out of their bodies and this causes problems for them. So what we do when uh, we're feeding cows is make sure we supply enough energy so that doesn't happen. And fats are a great way to supply lots of energy because, you know, for the same reason they're a problem to us as humans, eating too much fat, too much energy. So for a cow, we don't have that issue. Cow's fat intake is very low compared to ours. Like typically their diet is about 2% fat. And our human diet is more like 20% fat. So I'm talking just on, the, on a dry basis. So cows don't really eat much fat. If you were to give them just any old fat, it's actually going to cause problems in their digestive tract. So they, they won't uh, eat very much of it. And palmitic acid, you know, this one that's high in palm oil, this 16-carbon uh, saturated fat, does not have those effects in the rumen in the digestive tract of the cow. So they're able to actually consume that without messing up uh, digestion, and it supplies energy to support the milk production of the cow, especially in these times of negative energy balance for the cow. You know, people have been feeding fat to cows for as long as I've been, you know, aware of what is being fed to cows. And we've gone through a transition of which fat sources work well, you know, and, and people have tried corn oil and soybean oil. And because of the unsaturated fat content of those, they really are harmful to the bacteria in the digestive tract of the, of the cow. And so you, you can't get a cow to eat much of that, and it will mess up the fiber digestion which is part of what a cow can really do well, is digest fiber. So over the years, people have sourced out different ingredients to use to supply fat and energy to cows. And, and today, we are finding that palmitic acid is, uh, as Alejandro said, is something that's got an economic 
price tag to it that makes it worthwhile to, that's the fat to feed to cows. You don't mess up the rumen. You get the uh, benefit that the cow won't have this extreme negative energy balance and she'll be healthy. So that's really what we're after here is good energy source that doesn't mess with the cow. Are cows being fed then these fat supplements throughout their lactation or when they're in negative energy, only when they're in negative energy balance, which is early in lactation? So this will depend on how the farm has decided to do their you know, ration formulation. So that's also something that goes through sort of phases of popularity of what to do. So 20 years ago, it was very common to split up a herd of cows into multiple groups and have a different ration for each of those groups. And it was to try and make sure that they don't lose too much weight in early lactation or gain too much weight in late lactation. We've uh, gotten with equipment that's around nowadays, it's very common to feed a single ration to all of the cows, but you might supplement some individually, you know, based on things that you're uh, noticing in those individual animals. And actually, that's an area that we're progressing towards more and more is individualized attention for the diets of individual dairy cows is like, okay, what does this particular cow need based on what we observe and, and see in, in her production level, her intake, her energy balance. So there's a mix of sort of different approaches people take to try and deal with this variability you have between cows within a herd. So it can vary from farm to farm and cow to cow. It's my understanding, and you can tell me I'm completely wrong, John, that there is also some some feeding when when there's additional challenge for the cow, yeah. like in the summer when we have some heat stress, we might feed it to, to make sure she continues to, to be good. I understand that there's also some incentive to feed when there's a higher demand for fat those incentive days in the Canadian system where you can get a short-term temporary boost in fat. Uh, is, is that the case or am I wrong there? No, that is that is the case. So, you know, milk contains fat, protein, and lactose. These are the main solid components of milk. And fat is the most variable. So it will change, you know, the percent of the milk that is fat uh, can vary quite a bit. And a lot of it has to do with diet or environment, like the time of year uh, that you're talking about. And, uh, you know, say heat stress in cows can also influence it. And uh, during hot times, this might be a better time to actually feed a fat because there's less heat produced by the cow from the fat that they consume compared to say consuming carbohydrate and the amount of heat the cow will produce. So sort of the efficiency of turning the diet component into a milk component is better with fat and there will be less heat production. So this is a reason you'd switch in summer months to adding in fat. When you change the total amount of fat that a cow consumes, then that will change the fat percent in the milk. That's another issue. Or cows in early lactation will uh, mobilize more fat from their bodies into milk than cows in late lactation. And actually, the protein quality that you feed a cow will influence the milk fat percent as well. And the, the carbohydrate supply will influence it. So there's, there's very many dietary factors will actually influence the milk fat percent. And we're quite familiar with most of those. 
So there's only a few sort of uh, holes in our gaps in our knowledge to be able to predict, you know, if I change this diet of the cow, what's going to happen to the milk fat percent? And you have to consider more than just the amount of fat the cow's eating, or whether it's palmitic acid or various other fatty acids. We also got to consider what the carbohydrates are. Are we talking about starch? Are we talking about cellulose? You've got to consider the amino acid profile of the protein supplement that they're also getting to make sure they've got enough protein for them. So different amino acids will have effects on the milk fat percent. So diet, it's not just the fat amount in the diet, it's all of the components of the diet uh, integrated together will you know, ultimately determine how much fat is in the milk that the cow produces. One last question, and this is a question I got from a neighbor. How much palmitic acid or palm oil, or I, I, I think people have this vision that we're dumping buckets of palm oil in front of these cows. My perception is it's actually quite a small volume, isn't it? It is. So, you know, a cow typically has about 2% fat in their diet, and you can supplement up to about 5%. But typically when people are doing palm fat feeding, it's a, probably around 1%. And that's 1% of, of the dry matter, I guess, of the diet. But it's a small percentage of the diet is that. And it may be like 500 grams a day in a cow that eats 25,000 grams a day of dry matter. Yeah, that's a, so it's a relatively small proportion. So we understand then what it does and, and why we're doing it. A question to the group then. In addition to raising butter fat or reducing the energy deficit that that cow is in, what changes do we see to milk products is my first question. And what changes might that bring to processed products? And, and I have to admit, it's, it's maybe a flaw in my education, but I am going to cop to the fact that I'm an economist, uh, not a biologist. But it had never occurred to me that palmitic acid is a naturally occurring fatty acid in many animal products. Meat, milk has a natural amount of palmitic acid in it. Right. Uh, breast milk has palmitic acid in it. So, so, and that's not from people eating palm oil. That is naturally synthesized in our digestive tract. Right? Is it? So, so yeah. having said that, and and admitted that I'm, I didn't know. I should have known, but I didn't know. How does this feeding affect the milk fatty acids and then therefore the processed products? Since I've been quiet so far, Mike, yeah, maybe I'll please. jump in here and, and just make a few comments to that because it's it's a great question. And and I mean, it's a long, really, it's a long chain of events, right? I mean, John described um, the combination of, of feedstuffs that can be put together, put in front of a cow. The cow then does a phenomenal job of metabolizing that and processing that and and some of it passes into the milk some of it is synthesized and used to synthesize other fatty acids in the milk and other components and then we have that milk coming out of out of a cow and and we've got multiple cows and multiple herds all with some degree of of normal biologic variation and even some seasonal variation and then that moves on through our uh to our processors who you know again, process the milk depending on the product to be produced. And and we end up with different processing plants across the province, across the country, around the world that get milk from sort of farms in their region that might be a little bit different. The feed sources might be a little bit different. So the milk that's arriving there might be a little bit different in composition and 
They use that to produce products that probably have a, a bit of, uh, undoubtedly have some variability in those products that they, they produce. But that's all part of the, the biology there. I th- I'll jump in and say, you know, we see variability all over the place. I mean, I can buy two steaks on the exact same day and, and have them taste and texture be completely different. So, so some of that is just natural biological variability. You're absolutely right, Mike. And and one of the fun things, the exciting things, is that I think we're we're able to dig down a little bit deeper along this this whole process as as we learn more and more in in terms of the diet, in terms of the product, and even in between in in terms of the milk. Right. I've been around the dairy industry for close to thirty years, and and when I started, we were lucky that we were able to sort of measure the amount of total fat and total protein in milk that was being produced. Now we've got infrared equipment that allows us to, you know, for every every uh, batch of milk, every pickup of milk on a dairy farm, we can actually use that equipment to dissect and, and look at, you know, what is the fatty acid profile of the milk coming from that farm. It's pretty exciting stuff, which allows us then, or will allow us to sort of understand that flow through to the end product, which I, I'm not sure we do. I'm not sure we're there yet, but we're have certainly got the technology where we're moving in that direction. Yeah, I, I would like to make a comment, though. But I mean, yes, the natural variability, it's, it's, a, it's an issue, you know, that things don't come from a single source, a single cow. There's always a mixture of things. But I mean, I found, I don't know whether... It's a good journal, the Journal of Applied Animal Research, and it's Chamberlain and the Peters paper from 2017. It seems that they only had four fistulated cows, which is not a very big thing, but it seemed to be fairly well controlled, and they added different amounts of palmitic and steric, right? And the highest level was 2% of palmitic acid, right? And then on the other side, they have 2% of steric acid. And um, under those control conditions, with these cows, which I'm assuming are fairly homogeneous and controlled. And, and I mean, it's a, as, as close to like a, doing an in vitro experiment as you can do with, with live animals. They did get some very large changes in the palmitic acid content. So what I'm saying is that it is possible to increase the palmitic acid content quite a bit. They, they listed here a very thorough analysis on fatty acid composition. And, uh, and there's also papers from uh, 2014, I think, that show that the physical properties change. So under extremely controlled conditions, two grams of pure palmitic acid, not palm oil, and you can actually go uh, up to almost 40% palmitic acid. Now, if you go back to the handbook of lipid composition, Jensen's one, so there's some data from a good um, Canadian researcher, Bob Ackman, out of Nova Scotia, and uh, some data on uh, Maryland butter of 1993. So it's a, it's, a, it's a way back. And they come with an average, right? Because of this variability to give a number is almost ridiculous, right? Remember when we used to have summer butter and winter butter and butter from this cow and that cow? You know, it, high variability. So I was trying to look for a data set with a bit of an average, you know? And they, they report something like a 28% um, content of palmitic acid. So it is possible to go from 28% to 40%. Uh, depending on how uh, depending on how controlled your experiment is, right, and and how controlled your animals are. Now, from a technological point of view, if you have a fat with twenty eight percent saturated fat or forty percent saturated fat, you'll have a very different fat. Like the fat will definitely have a higher melting point. Uh, the fats um, rely on their hardness because they're like polycrystalline material. So the fat crystallizes, form all these little fat crystals, and they trap oil within. 
And of course, it's highly dependent on temperature, right? Take a piece of butter out of the fridge, you can throw it through a window, right? Or if it's a hot day, it's super soft, right? So you got to consider that as well. It's highly temperature dependent, but you can change the content of, uh, of saturated fatty acids quite remarkably in the same way as you can go the other way, right? If, if the cow for some reason ends up eating a lot of unsaturated fatty acids, which may not be the best for it, but let's in the balance there, it will have a lot more oleic and linoleic acid. You know, it will go the other way and the, and the butter will be runny. And I think that's the basis of what used to be the summer and winter butters. So what I'm saying that it is possible to increase the palmitic acid content of the butter. And if you do that in a controlled fashion, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that people do this, you can end up with quite a bit of a harder product. But other things that we're changing are things like the globule size. The fat is not just dispersed. They exist in these globules. So that changes too. They seem to be getting bigger. So now there's other factors that play into it. Is the combination of a little more saturated or is it really because now these, these globules are bigger that gives you a hardness? So it may be an indirect effect of palmitic acid that has nothing to do with the palmitic acid content. So it can get complicated pretty fast, but just in this theoretical way, uh, saying if, if that's the only thing that changed, you can get a harder butter. So there is a possibility that butter is getting harder because it has more saturated fatty acids, I, I, unless I'm reading things wrong. I think that's valid. I read some studies too, Alejandro. I, I didn't see that one. I'll, I'll ask you to send it to me. Most of the studies I saw in unfistulated cows showed it went from, like you said, 28% to 30% or 31%. So again, that might be enough to make a difference. But in order for that to happen, and maybe this will be the, the last question, although I'm, I will give everyone an opportunity to, to say anything that they didn't get an opportunity to say, in order for that to happen, there would have to have been a significant change in the feeding of palm oil over the last six to 12 months. And I'll ask John and Dave, who are out with, with dairy producers on a regular basis, is there a sense that we've seen a significant change in the use of palm oil in the last six to 12 months that would lead to the types of changes that Alejandro was just referring to? I would speak to say, no, not that I'm aware of. So it has gradually become more and more popular over the past five years. And I think it's just because of the availability of it and, and the success that maybe your neighbor uh, down the road is having with feeding this uh, fat supplement. Uh, and so then other people have taken it up. But I wouldn't say that there's been a recent acceleration in the use of palm fats. And I guess from my perspective, I, I would agree with John, Mike, we've got a couple of studies ongoing where we're visiting farms and, and collecting data for a number of projects, one looking at, at free fatty acids in milk, and, and we're collecting information about what those farms are, are feeding and, and their rations. And it gets pretty complex, but one of the questions we are asking about added fats and what products they're using, and, and certainly based on Based on that work, certainly I can't say that we've seen any diff any remarkable difference. Just wanted to jump in and say that Alejandro, that Chamberlain and DePeter's paper is good. I did my PhD with Ed DePeter's in in fat feeding and stuff. So, <laughs> no, it's good. John, would it be possible that if you just change, if you feed palm oil, it would be a different dynamic if you, if you feed the free fatty acids. First of all, gram per gram, you're adding twice the amount. And it is really dose dependent. Like 1% causes the change you were talking about, Mike. Yes. Now 2% is a lot bigger. So could it be just a change from palm oil 
versus palmitic acid would be a gigantic, like gigantic change in the in the final composition. Uh, it, John or, and, and David, did, did, have, have people began using more the palmitic, the free palmitic acid supplement or not? That is the that is what people are aiming for, and so the supplements that are being used now are something like eighty five percent palmitic acid. So they're not it's not straight up palm oil, but it's palmitic that has been extracted or isolated from palm oil or from wherever. But that's the preferred supplement now is is actually not the straight up palm oil, but it's just a palmitic enriched fat supplement. Okay. I think that that's a, a great introduction. I learned a lot there. And as we wrap up, I'm going to go around and I'll start with Dave, go in the opposite order of how we started and, and say, given the discussion you've heard so far, Mike learned a lot. I'm sure other people will learn a lot. Is there any last point you'd like to make relative to this discussion that, that will help people understand it better? Dave, you're first. Thanks, Mike. The point that I'd like to make is is that I think we're all learning a lot in in this whole conversation, and and I think that's fantastic. One of the tools that I sort of alluded to is is we're getting the technology readily available and in hand now to look at milk composition and to tie that back to what cows are being fed. Exciting project going on currently in Quebec where they're looking at the fatty acid profiles in milk um, on dairy farms on all dairy farms in Quebec, relating that back to the nutritionists and, and the nutrition that's going into those cows to better understand really how that translates, not just in the experimental setting like we talked about, but also in 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 practice. And and so um, I think we're we're getting tools available, we're getting data available that allow us to, I think, much more quickly understand what the impact is of, of some of these changes. And, and as we see changes in whether that's in product or in, in milk or even in feeds, I think we'll be able to fine tune those a little better, understand them a little better and, and have a better sense of, of so what some of the impacts are there. So pretty exciting, um, you know, again, science at the cutting edge and, and applied in the, uh, you know, in the production of all dairy products. I'm not sure why this is such an interesting topic to everyone, and I think partly, <laughs> you know, out of not not a lack of familiarity with what cows get fed or how they get fed, which is totally understandable. Why would you know that? And uh, so, what I'd like to say is, you know, the ration formulation is very precise. We use computers to do it. So what we do, we don't just look at ingredients, we break them down to their individual nutrients and actually way more than you would like on a food label for a can of soup or something like that. It'll tell you how many calories and how much protein. We break the calories down into what are the individual nutrients supplying those calories and even the proteins. We look at different ones, whether it's room integratable or not. And we use computer, we use equations in a computer to actually evaluate the diet and see what it's missing for particular nutrients. And so we use ingredients to supply the nutrients and make a very precise formulation for what that cow is going to be doing and what she needs to have in her diet. And and so we pull ingredients based on uh, economic considerations, availabilities, you know, are they available for us? And and so I, I think people, yeah, should be aware of that, how precise it is. It's much better than human nutrition, really, in terms of quantifying what's happening and what's needed. I, I was going to say, it's cows get 
better nutrition than I do because they pay more attention. They pay, we pay more attention to what they eat. You shouldn't pay too much attention to what I'm eating, frankly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they Alejandro? definitely don't eat pizza and brownies and beer like you do. And that has a lot of palm oil. Maybe we are yeah, yeah. with palmitic acid too. I'm sure I am. Sure. Uh, yeah, and uh, all I would say is that uh, first of all, people shouldn't jump to conclusions and, uh, and and judge ethically something that is very complex. I mean, we eat palm oil morning, day, and night, and we're concerned about a few milligrams being fed to a cow. I think that we should be concerned about sustainability, but maybe we should eat less Twinkies, you know, and that would make much of a bigger difference if you're if you're concerned about sustainability. I think. Um, secondly, and, and there shouldn't be the sensationalism, right? First and second, there's no data. People have made up. I, I never knew that we were surrounded by theoretical physicists everywhere because nobody has shown a fatty acid analysis <laughs> or a mechanical test. Nobody. So there's a lot of accusations and finger pointing with zero data. So I think I think we should be a little bit more scientific about this rather than to just uh, blowing it up in the social media. And, and then and then you know, last but not least, the the, the marketing bodies and the and, and, and uh, they should be a little bit more transparent. There's absolutely nothing wrong with adding some fatty acid to the diet of a cow. You're not eat, feeding them like sheep brains or something like that. It is a, a natural component. It could come from palm oil. It could come from cottonseed oil or soybean oil. It is, like John said, highly scientific to keep these cows healthy. The last thing a farmer wants is to damage their, their animal. They, they take care of them probably even better than take care of themselves. So, I mean, that idea should get out of people's heads. So more scientific, uh, you know, uh, and, and also, um, and also this, this, this aspect of, uh, of being transparent about the communication with the public. And, and, and maybe at the end, if you actually do an analysis like we're doing over the weekend right now in a very small sample, it was hardly scientific. But at least it will be a first step to having some data to see if these relationships that people talk about are true. Maybe there's no relationship. And maybe there's no palmitic acid accumulation, and maybe there are differences in hardness, maybe they're not. So I think uh, based on the data, we can make some informed decisions that, that don't need to be blown up out of proportion. Just to make one point, and, and I agree 100% with Alejandro, the one place where there there is some data is in the milk composition data that, that I alluded to from the studies going on in Quebec, and Danielle Lefebvre from Lactinet, who is... Uh, uh, who was leading some of that work when this issue first broke? They went back and and looked at their data in, in on, from Quebec dairy farms and his statement and and it was made publicly was that they haven't seen um, remarkable differences in uh, the fatty acid composition of milk going back uh, a year and a half, which is which is where their data extends to, and that includes um, you know any significant levels or differences in, in palmitic acid and some of the other larger, uh, more common uh, fatty acids. So at least there is some some data there, I think, to at least uh, support the, the argument that we're not sure anything has changed. But certainly, I think we'll continue to dig into this and, and uh, look for those answers and, and look to science, actually, to, uh, to verify if there is an issue and hopefully if there is, then to deal with it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to wrap up with three points, maybe echoing a little bit what Alejandro said is people do not, and this is my research, people do not have a good understanding of how we produce food. They don't understand how we feed cattle. In fact, if we ask Canadians, does a cow have to have a calf before she gives milk, basic mammalian biology, 
many people can't answer that question. So, so I think discussions like this are important to helping people understand and not jump to conclusions. The second point is relative to not jumping to conclusions, like Alejandra said, let's get the data, like Dave talked about, like the small study you're doing over the weekend, Alejandro, let's really understand what's going. You know, I think it's funny. I, I don't doubt the people who, who perceive their butter is harder, but in my small sample of one, there's no difference in the butter that's coming into our house. And so there's clearly something else going on here. And the last point is, I think a lesson to me on the power of social media, how things can feed on themselves and get away and how we should all take a moment to reflect and read and talk to people who know what they're talking about and, and get some information before we, before we jump to conclusions. So thank you so much for taking the time. This was uh, valuable for me, and I'm sure it'll be uh, valuable for others who listen. Thank you very much, Mike, for putting this together. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Thank you. As we wrap up another episode, I want to take a moment to thank Max Graham, we get to have the interesting discussions, and he does the hard work to make us sound good. I also want to thank Zach Von Massow for the original music that we use in the podcast. Check out foodfocusguelph.ca. We have a blog that is updated regularly and our Food Focus trend report as well. You can contact us through the website or at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca if you have any questions or suggestions. We appreciate our audience and your recommendation. It helps us grow. If you are so inclined, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews move us up the ladder and help others find us. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening and stay in touch.